0: Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I, am in the bath, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, who's to say it isn't a jacuzzi? Ha. I was just trying to give the listeners a, a, a taste of my, you know, my new celebrity philosophy podcasting lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yes, obviously that. Yeah, they're not listening. No, I'm just in my feet. Yeah. No, obviously, they're not listening now. But I just thought it might give the whole thing a certain, you know, gravitas, right? Like, like, it'd be a bit, a bit, um, Kanye. Ah, uh, oh, hey, hey, yeah, yeah, so, ah, yeah, you, yeah, you listened to the first episode, did you not, yeah, yes, yes, right. yes, I, I know I sound shit, I was too far away from the fucking microphone, yeah, yes, I, I knew that when I first, ah. but it doesn't really matter, right, because yes yes Justin is brilliant yeah I mean that's why I invited him I mean that's why I think it was actually quite clever yeah yeah he was great yeah I mean he is very articulate I mean yeah okay I yeah yes yes I suppose it wasn't that hard yeah I suppose I, I did just have to point that yeah maybe yeah okay maybe maybe anyone could have done that Hey, um, sorry, it's the, the other foot now. Um uh, I noticed when I was at the studio that enormous pile of fan mail and stuff. Yeah, I mean who even handwrites letters <laughs> these days? Uh, you know. I I, th- I think I think some of them were you know, they they had perfume on them or, or something. Y- yeah. Yes, I, I suppose it could have been cat's piss. But 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 like expensive cat's piss. It was still a, it was still a really big fucking bag and and you know then all those emails labeled podcast love f- philosophy uh it was really what yeah I, I yeah i i mean i i i knew that like yeah yeah I, I i yes i knew they were all for the for the all all of them for the guy from the philosopher's zone i mean obviously I mean, he's, he's 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 great isn't he he's he's so fabulous I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I did hear he was he was also, um, you know, I heard he was also a, a bit racist. But no, 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 I didn't say that. It was just it was just someone I met at a party, that that I went to. What? Oh, seriously? You're you can gonna ask me about the name? Really? I mean, no, it's very simple. Philosophy can ruin your life. It's it's a promise. It's like an ad. Like it should have an exclamation mark. It's like, you know you know those uh, those deodorant ads that suggest that everyone will want to have sex with you except. Uh, instead of sex, there's there's more. It's more like ruination. What, what do you mean? Why isn't it philosophy must ruin your life? Like, why the fuck would I say that? I I I'd sound like a cross between Rilke and a complete twat. Should philosophy should ruin your life? Now now you're just listing English modal auxiliaries at me. Yeah, that that would be impressive if you were Finnish and 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 you know. An idiot. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. Uh, my name's Brian Cook. With me in the studio, I have Dr. Jess White from Western Sydney University. Um, Jess is, uh, Jess is the author of a wonderful book on a Agamben, a critical work on Agamben called uh, Catastrophe and Redemption. Um, she's also working on a, a large research project uh, involving the role in which human rights discourses and practices have, have played um, in relation to uh, neoliberalism and some of the deprivations of contemporary capitalism. Um, Jess welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you Brian. Um,
0: Jess I'm going to start with my first question as I always do. How did philosophy ruin your life?
1: My own life? I think probably the way that I think philosophy can ruin any of our lives and I'll talk about mine also is that I think that it prevents us from simply taking for granted the world in which we live in a way that makes it possible to act in that world in an instrumental way. So I think If we look at the university system today we're often told that we need our work to have impact that we need to have direct productivity or results of what Mm. we do and i think what philosophy does is make it very hard to accept that rhetoric at face value and to accept the idea that what we need to do is simply contribute to the world as it is and it forces people into the situation of questioning precisely the way the world is and i think that there can be all kinds of consequences for that and at its most extreme i think that that can be a very devastating experience for people but at the very least i think what it does is mean that philosophy creates a certain distance between the person who thinks or the person who practices it and the imperatives of the contemporary world.
0: Jess that's the best answer anyone's given me on that and 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 it I mean, it touches to the heart of of what I meant in calling the podcast. What I mean, this isn't particularly. I mean, this is it, it, the, in this sense, philosophy is definitely a something ruinous, right? It is definitely a ruination, but also one that at least potentially has 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 quite positive consequences. But your your answer is neither ignoring the dimension of ruination nor the the possibly which might lead us to to one of our later topics, the, the possibly redemptive moment contained mm. in that. Um, Okay, so given this, can I can I can I then ask how how did you first come to philosophy? how did you how did you first encounter it what was your sort of first philosophical love or the fir- your first encounter with something that made you set down this this path of ruining your own life? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, it's a good question. I think that there were probably two. Two answers to it, and I'm not quite sure, and I'd have to think about how they relate to each other. One would be a very personal answer about um, discovering a a book of Simone de Beauvoir's memoirs when I was travelling as a 20, 21-year-old, backpacking and feeling profoundly alienated from the backpacker social world that, uh, that I existed in and finding this book in a book swap on an island near the beach um, in Greece and taking it away and just sitting by the beach for days and reading this book and being really stunned by this model of political and intellectual practice and life that I was reading about. So that would be one example, but I think that that didn't really impact on my intellectual work for quite some time at the time I was doing a journalism degree which is my undergraduate degree right, right, right. Um, I didn't know that. Huh. and At a certain point after taking a long time to do this journalism degree, I realized that I really wasn't particularly interested in being a journalist and that I wanted to write things that were longer than 300 words (laughs) and that I couldn't imagine working for Rupert Murdoch or for any of the kind of options that existed, certainly in Australia at that time. So I moved into a social science honours program. And around that time, I was doing a lot of activist work on asylum seekers and mandatory detention of asylum seekers in Australia. And in that context, I discovered the work of Giorgio Agamben. And some of what he was writing there seemed to resonate quite strongly with some of the um, political activism that me and many other people were doing at the time, in so much as both he had an account of the centrality of the camp, Um, to contemporary politics and the camp defined as a space where what he calls the state of exception finds a localised form, so a space in which law and violence essentially become indistinct. Yes. Um, And this seemed to resonate with the experience of Australia's migration detention centres, which were in a very... um, ambiguous and liminal space in relation to the legal space of the Australian Territory. But also one of the things that was quite compelling about his work at the time was the critique of human rights discourses that it contained. And this was a time when the language of human rights was being used by many of the more liberal or Uh, progressive sections of what was generally called the refugee movement and it was often used in ways that served to undercut the political action that was taking place in the detention centres themselves and to funnel all political struggles through a sort of legalistic prism and so what Agamben was saying about the complicity between liberal legal regimes and the exceptional supposedly exceptional regimes of incarceration that we were seeing in places like Australia's Woolmer and Detention Centre were very striking so at that point I became interested in his thought and really I mean that ruined my life clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Dallas the,
0: your answer actually surprises me in some sense because I I I wasn't aware how far back these concerns which I think are, are still very much present in your in your own work and perhaps after and we'll talk about this this later a certain break with a, a gap and up, up to a point that, that informs your sort but how far back these these concerns were present I mean I, I know um, that you did in some ways as you just said come to philosophy via via political activism by, by being already politically engaged um, against some of the Ah, the many kind of rebarberative and hideous kind of um, actions taken by the Australian government but I mean one of the things that, that interests me about your, your work both past and present is the way um, that I feel that you have taken seriously the critique of human rights discourse that is implicit in Egambin because I I, I recall also I think we both do the moment of a Egambin's kind of Anglophone reception and there was this sense to which yeah I mean uh, which I, I still think is true in in talking about a place like the kind of offshore distention centres we are talking clearly about places that are in a Gambin sense abandoned by or ambiguously to the law right so so simultaneously places where all legal protections are stripped away but on the other hand where you you seem to be exposed to the law more, more than anything else, sure. as, you, as you mentioned. Um, but I actually recall, maybe this is just my own ignorance, my own distance from this scene, but something like a, a kind of leftist political... Um, critique of the kind of things that were going on with uh, the Australia's offshore detention facilities in Guantanamo Bay and so on that I think saw itself as quite allied to human rights discourse sure. um, Yes. W- would you say that that's, that that's
1: absolutely I think that's right I mean I think that one of the things about those movements and certainly one of the things about much of the early reception of Agamben's thought is that it tended to take his critique of what he termed the normalisation of the state of of exception yeah. as though it were a call for the the resurrection of the rule of law exactly um exactly. and in fact what i would argue is that agamben was arguing precisely the reverse that yeah, in fact means, yeah. um it was not possible to return to the rule of law but nor was it desirable that in fact the rule of law always contained within itself and rested upon the foundation of the possibility of exceptional violence. And so to assume that you could simply reassert the rule of law in the face of exceptional forms of violence would not actually have the political purchase or the intellectual purchase that people who use that language expected it to. And I think, I mean, one thing I would suggest is that after a very, very long time in which that language has been in use and in which these policies have continued and, if anything, have intensified, yes. that, if nothing else, this would suggest that there is something deeper going on and something deeper to the resonance of a legalistic language and these forms of management than had previously been recognised. Mm.
0: So, so you're saying, it, it, like, subsequently it's been a kind of vindication of that depth of, of critique of these sort of legal forms that...
1: Uh, I think so. Vampires, I yes.
0: Think uh, can I say, w- w- two two things about this? One, why do you think? Uh, I mean, in, insofar as it seems kind of symptomatic to me, why do you think this was so misunderstood at the time? Like, like uh, that against critique was put into the service of kind of saying, "Well, there are these, um, there are these obviously kind of horrible, um, like it's like this expressive like abrogation of everything that sort of liberal." Um, uh, um, the principle of the rule of law under liberalism is supposed to um, is, is supposed to be about, we see this this sort of violent abrogation of this and maybe Agamben's giving us a sort of descriptive account uh, which we can still sort of model under the norms of liberalism, it's like we mm-hmm. need to restore things sure. to the liberal framework, why, why do you think people thought of it in that way, like in a
1: I think there are a number of things. One, I think that Agamben's work happened to come out just as things like September 11, the attacks on the World Trade Center took place. And so in the context of the emerging war on terror, it seemed that his works were extremely prescient. And I think this meant that his work was received in a really, in a wide range of disciplines, but tended to be received in a way that detached it from many of the philosophical assumptions underpinning his work. And I think that's completely understandable. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was publishing for a long, long time before writing the works in the Homosaka series, which dealt specifically with political questions. Much of that earlier work was in aesthetics, on the philosophy of language, in areas quite far removed from the explicitly political concerns of his later work. And I think that... It's completely unsurprising that people in disciplines that were more politically engaged with questions of state power or political questions, whether they be um, politics, sociology, criminology, a number of disciplines that he was really taken up in, didn't feel the need or didn't have the time or didn't have the inclination to go back and read all his work on aesthetics or his work on language and so therefore there was an assumption that certain aspects of his thought could simply be taken at face value uh, as a critique of sort of bush era exceptional politics and it was a time when I don't think that what many people wanted to hear was that actually there's a deep continuity between these Bush era exceptional politics and the normal politics of liberal democratic polities. If anything what people wanted to hear is that there is something that can be done about these exceptional regimes of detention of uh, incarceration like Guantanamo Bay and that what can be done is the return to the rule of law and I think there was work that I don't want to dismiss that was important um, Supreme Court challenges to the legality of certain aspects of the detentions at Guantanamo for example and I think that there was a period in which people thought that Agamben's work could really be utilised to bolster those kinds of critical legal responses to what was seen as arbitrary sovereign power but I think that really Agamben's work is not particularly suited to those kinds of uses and once that was recognised to a certain extent I think that those people became far less interested in dealing with his work because it really didn't suit the particular purposes that they had used it for in the first place. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes,
0: I mean it's interesting because my sense is that you maybe, <laughs> I won't I won't go so far as to say as uniquely, but that you were rare as someone reading a Gambon at that time. As someone who came to a Gambon through the, uh, the for the reasons that everyone came to Agamben at this time because of the the resonance that we felt between between what he was saying and what was going on in the world um, but when you talk about and I remember I, I had a similar position at this time like I remember thinking that you know precisely the worst thing to do would be to abandon you know liberal like liberal uh, um, uh, Discourses, liberal institutions, liberal content, at the point that they were being sort of so egregiously overridden and smashed and yeah. smashed to pieces—which is something I, I, I now think I was I was wrong about. But I remember uh, I, I have this sense that you already at the time could see could see what was problematic in that in in that attempt to defend sort of liberalism against the violation. Like you could already see the complicity between the kind of um, neocon. Extirpation, <laughs> expropriation of, of liberalism and liberalism itself. And I suppose I'm to ask you about this in, in the sense of why you think that was, not just in the sense to say, oh, Jess, you're so clever, although obviously you are. But I mean, I think, I suppose what I'm saying is, I, I think it wasn't just scholarly scrupulousness on your part that gave you that insight, that there was something about the way you assessed the political situation, possibly possibly from a, a Marxist heritage, that gave you that? Can you, can you tell me a, a, a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, I think if I was sceptical about those kinds of readings, it was perhaps because I didn't come to these questions with the same kind of commitment to liberalism as yeah. the the final horizon of political thought. And that probably did come from some kind of a commitment to Marx and Marx's thought, although a fairly incohate one sure. at that period. I mean, sure. I was in my early 20s, <laughs> if we can recall. Indeed, indeed. Um, so I don't want to give myself some profound <laughs> you know, insight at this time. But And perhaps there was a certain immaturity or irresponsibility about that too. I'm sure that people who were involved in those kind of rule of law campaigns would say that and would see that rejecting that framework at the very time that it was under attack, as you have said, would be a sign and a mark of irresponsibility and a disarming of the tools that were available to challenge Bush administration type policies or immigration detention policies here. But one of the things that I think was quite striking to me... um, through the period preceding that was the lack of purchase of some of those liberal discourses in challenging immigration detention in this country and the need for them to disarm more radical critiques. And so it was out of a, a witnessing and a reflection on the way those liberal critiques tended to disarm more radical thought and more radical action, and particularly the action of people within the detention centers themselves, that really made me feel like some of those languages needed to be questioned as the horizon of possible political thought and action. Mm. And
0: I think I think you've, your has been very much vindicated in, in this sense. But but I think this is a, a great insight of some of your of some of your early work that that the kind of blackmail version of the of the defense of liberalism kind of goes you know well but if you don't hold to this line won't you allow something even worse but I think you know, the, an insight that maybe drives some of your work is, is, but no, as in the, the impotence of some of these is not contingent, it's not an accident. There is a kind of fundamental complicity between their ability to shut down um, um, more radical forms of critique, or as you say, very importantly, even even the way in which people who are the sort of, um, who are being, uh, I, I, I don't know, who are resisting um, um, these kind of these kind of situations, these exceptional situations, the way they are acting and thinking themselves—that there's something about liberal discourse that's hopelessly inadequate. Um, all right, so I, I want to move on uh, to where you took this this work on agamben because I think following this period, you, you know, there's a very sort of serious, long, and, and sustained engagement with agamben So we've talked about that initial spark of mm-hmm. what got you into it. What, what then kept you going, Like I suppose? What did you find in Agamben's thought that continued
1: this Some kind of strange obsession. I mean, I thought for a very long time... I did a PhD that ended up being on Agamben's thought and later became the book that you mentioned, Catastrophe and Redemption, and the political thought of Giorgio Agamben. But... At the time that i started that work i thought that it was going to be about these kinds of dynamics that we've been talking about that it was going to be about guantanamo bay and anti-terror laws and these kinds of juridical transformations that were taking place at the time and what i initially wanted to do still want to do is trace the relationship between those transformations in juridical form and transformations in capitalism um, particularly in the period since the 1970s so thinking about that in a certain sense perhaps that's what I'm doing now Uh, but that's what I wanted to do then and at a certain point I realized that what was really really capturing me and what I really was fascinated with were was Agamben's thought and some of the real difficulties it was posing for me and I decided that to a certain extent i would abandon the other material at least for the time being and really try to grapple with some of the questions that were coming up for me in agamben's work and i think in particular what interested me was the relationship between an extremely bleak diagnosis of the present one which declares that the concentration camp is the paradigm of modern politics and on the other hand a redemptive exuberant tone where there are many many gestures throughout agamben's work to a coming politics to a completely new politics to a coming community to what he terms a form of life and all of these uh, figures and Ideas which particularly in those earlier works were not particularly well uh, fleshed out and tended to operate in a sort of a gestural manner, but nonetheless really captured me and particularly made me dissatisfied with those accounts of Agamben's thought, which said, oh, he's just far too pessimistic a thinker. Um, He doesn't recognise all the possibilities that do exist in the present. And it seemed to me that, in fact, this wasn't correct and that there was something... In his thought about the relationship between political catastrophe and the possibility of some form of what we could call redemption, to use that sort of theological language, that was very very interesting and that I wanted to understand more about. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I mean, it, 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 it seems to me one of the, the major themes of catastrophe and redemption is, is first of all, to bring out the extent to which for Gambon the the Conditions for redemption are imminent to the vision of of hell, I suppose that, that uh by which he describes modernity. So, so the point that or our situation, like the situation of late capitalism, whatever you want to call it. And it seems um, to me that one of the things you were motivated by is first to, to um, critique those critics who saw in him only a kind of pessimism that would—I I don't know—remind you of the the Heidegger's last interview of kind of, uh, which I think was, was quite often actually the the precise trope that was invoked that there's a there's a messianism and only a God can save mm-hmm. us. Now, um, which actually um, we might talk about this in the moment, sort of contradicts again own understanding of what messianism is uh, as opposed to eschatology. But also, you found. As in, it's it's like you wanted to be clear about how these the how the redemptive moment was imminent to the catastrophe, but also there was something you at least ultimately you come down in the book in a position where you are dissatisfied with with the way that he locates the the seeds of redemption within the kind of horror of the of the present. Yeah, did you know? Did you know you'd be? <laughs> Um, when you started working on the thesis, did you have the second part already in mind or was this something you moved to? Did you take the, the, the imminence of, of hope in the darkness more seriously at the beginning and come to repudiate that or how did that work?
1: I think I was always, I had some kind of dissatisfaction with it and right. it took me some time to really articulate the type of dissatisfaction. I mean, my initial impetus was really about challenging both the kind of reading that we've just talked about, that sees Agamben just as a pessimistic thinker, but also a related reading that I always find very interesting. And it's one that... Um, we see in someone like Zizek, also in Antonio Negri, where they recognize that there is this redemptive moment in a Garman's thought, but they say, but haha, doesn't this look almost exactly like the catastrophe that he analyzes or the <laughs> catastrophe of our present? And this is meant to be a critique, like they've caught him out in this inconsistency when in fact he's articulated a model of redemption but hasn't noticed that it looks very much like the catastrophe that is already described. And it seems to me that... That's exactly the point of Agamben's thought, that what he calls the sort of, you know, going using Benjamin, the the teeny change that changes everything is what is significant. Um, to his account of redemption that in fact the catastrophe as he sees it is always extremely proximate to the possibility of the redeemed world and that's so I think because of his unrelenting criticism of certain aspects of the the political tradition and the philosophical tradition but particularly his account of the forms of separation that exist in that tradition between in, the, in ancient Greece, between Zoe and Bios, so a natural and a political life, um, between the oikos uh, and the polis, so the home and the political space. And what he sees is that in the course of modernity we've seen a collapse of those distinctions, which is both the possibility of or the reality, in fact, of catastrophe, The camp is the ultimate space in which life and politics can't be distinguished. But nonetheless, this is also the possibility of a new form of life, which would no longer separate out a depoliticised natural life from a political existence. So there was something about that reading that was attractive to me. And there are still aspects of that that are attractive to me. I really like his rejection of the form of nostalgia that I think you see in someone like Hannah Arendt, who always seems yes. to be harking back to the Greek polis and the clarity of the distinctions between natural and political life, for ex for example, and I think has never adequately come to terms with the centrality of slavery, for example, to enabling the form of freedom that manifested in the Greek polis or in the American Revolution, which she elevates over the French Revolution. So that aspect of Agamben's thought I have always liked and have always found quite attractive. But I also always felt that there was something in a certain sense, complacent about this idea of the teeny change that changes everything. And yes. I had a sense that perhaps, in fact, political change would require something slightly less teeny. <laughs> uh, yes.
0: I mean, OK, there's a, there's a number of things that, that um, strike me about that. So first of all, your are uh, it's what you said about Zizek and Negri's critique. It's always amusing when people do these kind of gotcha critiques of what people are explicitly saying, where you yes. think, you know, it's <laughs> not the critical, you were just saying that in a kind of sad voice, and Agamben would just say that in a happy voice. Yes. You just say, yes, I am. Like, like you Absolutely. know, where the danger, a, a, a phrase I know you um, hate that forms a very part of your your critique from Hölderlin, like, um, you know, where the danger. Lice so also grows the saving power yes, right yes. um but he is saying that like he's sure. saying that explicitly so you can't really repudiate him by saying that he's saying that you need sure, something else. that's right but but second i mean in terms of the the bit you like so you mentioned arent and you mentioned i mean the way you know if you read a book like the human condition or a, a revolution how how devoted she is to the idea that um we need to keep these fundamental distinctions that we have from the Greek that we need to clearly separate. We mustn't confuse the social with the political. We mustn't confuse labour, ponos, with um, work, poiesis, or with action, praxis, and it's actually the fact that we've forgotten the distinctions between these things that leads to the impoverishment or, or I suppose, the lack of a Republican, uh, the, the kind of Republican politics that she talks about in On revolution But... I think your, your critique and a Gambin's critique. I think you're right about that. Is these things have collapsed? Like the distinctions between these things are not just a matter of a kind of intellectual error. I mean, he- Hegel would say something like, you, you know, for Hegel, the um, categories are always categories are never just applied. Like it's not you have logic and then you apply it to stuff. Mm-hmm. It's like those categories actually emerge from from the sure. world to which they sure. are then then applied. And I I, I see you saying. Um, that you can't just say with irony that there's something too, I suppose Kantian about just saying no. You correct the categorical schema and then that will allow for politics. But okay, in terms of in terms of driving uh, in terms of what I want to ask you next about this. So it seems to me that one of the things one, one might like about a Gambit's position, precisely the one you you criticize, is. Um, about um the way you say the distinction between the the oikos and the polis has already collapsed under capitalism and under modernity one of the things that one might uh like about that position contra the nostalgia you mentioned is that there's a certain amount of you could argue there's a certain amount of fidelity to a a marxism in that tradition that precisely marx you know doesn't doesn't want us to regress to some sort of Utopian feudalism, or, sure. or something like that, um, that he wants to—he wants to say, no, no, there has to be something about the conditions of the present, i.e., capitalism, that that has the seeds of the future present. But the way you articulated, and I want to see what you think, this is right. The way you articulated, it—it it sounds to me like you're saying. And, and that's correct, you still like this part of Agamben's work, it's compatible with Marx's, but maybe what's missing is the ability to think politics, Like, would, is, is that a, is that a Look, Essentially
1: yeah. that's right, yeah. I mean I think that Marx is a real influence on this way of thinking for Agamben, and I think that certainly for Marx, as for Agamben, there's nothing to mourn in the collapse of the border between um, life and politics, for example. Mm-hmm. In fact, the split between civil society and the state was a real target of Marx's thought since his very early critiques of Hegel. So I think that there is that kind of tradition that Agamben is, to a certain extent, building on. And I do like the idea that we have to find political possibility in the present. We're not going to find it by returning to some idealised version of the past. Nonetheless, I think that what Agamben does is collapse any moment of political transformation or any moment of the how we get from there to here or from here to there rather and I think that because he wants to get away from any kind of idea of willful political action as well as wanting to avoid the problem of consciousness that he sees in Marxist accounts of the party for example and of class struggle he essentially collapses devastation into the redemption so there's a moment in the time that remains where he reads Marx's account of the proletariat where Marx says that the proletariat is the complete loss of man so can regain itself only through the complete re-winning of man and Agamben essentially reads this in such a way that pulls out any element of a task or any element of political struggle, he essentially says, the complete devastation of man is the complete re winning of man. Now, that's not what Marx says. Yeah. And I think Agamben knows very well that that's not what Marx yes. says. And it's that erasure of that gap that I think is the problem for me. Yes. Political catastrophe, in and of itself, can simply be political catastrophe. And I think that Agamben, to be fair to him in his more recent works, has tried to articulate forms of political practice that would enable a different relation to this world um, and possibly... The highest
0: poverty, for example. So his work
1: on the highest poverty, which is on the category of use as an alternative to property... um, also his account of what he terms profanation, which is about how we supposedly remove things that have been separated into another sphere um, and sacralized and return them to common use. So these yes. are very much related ideas. So I think he is attempting to think um, those forms of politics and I think in a certain sense, particularly with the account of use, he is trying to think what could be seen as his... Alternative or alternative's is not the right word, but his attempt to think a response to capitalism, um, and it's a response that essentially does away with an idea of struggle or uh, class antagonism, for instance. Um, whether this is a an account that's adequate to uh, contemporary politics is um, a real question, and I think, I mean, in a certain sense, it will. This will rest on the way that Agamben uh, fleshes out these ideas, if he plans to do so, which yeah. he may well not. Um, but I still feel that there is a sense in which his proposed forms of praxis are not really adequate to the magnitude of the problems that he so astutely analyses.
0: Yes. Why do you think... I mean, given that you you critique him on this point, and you've been, you've been very articulate about this, book, why do you think he... he... Hmm. recuses himself from making declarations about politics and political struggle on his own terms so granted that we have a problem with this what, what is it that you think what is it in his thought that, that makes him continually refuse to do this given that obvious problems follow from it i.e. that it can sound like a, a quietism or at least like it, it ignores the, uh, the, the, any, any reflection on actual politics or actual political struggles in, in terms of in, in favour of these kind of even if they're not but these these figures like profanation and mm-hmm. the restoration of, sure. of what was separated into the common or something like stays at this level I I don't know what you call whether you call it abstraction or what you call it, but yeah, what what do you think drives him to do this?
1: I think it's a profound critique of the Marxist tradition of the 20th century Mm -hmm. and a desire not to repeat various of the mistakes that he sees that tradition as having made. And there's certainly a, a Heideggerianism that informs his thought in so much as there's a very strong critique of the metaphysics of will that tends to give the impression that any kind of deliberate Human activity and therefore any political activity would necessarily reinscribe the forms of um, problems that we're experiencing. So it's a, in a sense, an extreme form of the version of the critique of liberalism that I was previously articulating. That he thinks that any attempt to provide political solutions risks simply reinscribing the problems. And certainly, I think that there's a real critique of a vanguardist or Leninist model. Mm. While that's not really articulated in depth throughout his work, I think there are moments when he's very critical of, say, uh, Lukács' account of class consciousness, for instance, that makes the argument that any account of consciousness ends up essentially splitting the conscious element, which ends up being the party, from the the unconscious lump or mass, which is the class. And I think that this is consistent with all of his accounts of... um, his resistance to those forms of separation that we were just talking about in relation to rent, but also going back and far more deeply to his opposition to a metaphysical splitting of the, the continuum of life that um, he traces to Aristotle and to Anima in particular, yeah. when you have these uh, divisions in the continuum of life. And what Agamben is always resistant to is an idea that consciousness can essentially be separated off from brute life and he sees some version of this in um, attempts by intellectuals to give direction to a political struggle that others would take up so I think he's always very much resistant to playing that political role of the intellectual who gives instructions um, but I think that uh, yeah, I think that there are both political and um, philosophical reasons that he constantly resists that role. Mm.
0: I, I, let's talk a little bit about some of those philosophical reasons because I think I think the the political ones are fairly clear in the sense that I mean you, you get m- many many of the sort of political theorists of the 20th century reject have a problem with with a Leninist vanguardism sure. or come as sort of rejecting this or apologizing Absolutely. for it so, but um, this 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 other thing interests me I mean in your terms do you see it is is the problem huh, is it is the problem uh, a sort of vestige of Heidegger or even a vestige of of Arendt where, where my, I get a sense. I, I don't know whether this is right, but where it's it's he's he has some notion that that talking about politics even without the vanguard, um, even if you talk about a, a, a sort of negrian multitude or something, that you still you still do something like identify human existence with with some vision of work some vision of, of something that it's supposed to do or talus and or it, it, is, is that is that correct do you think
1: that I think that that's definitely one aspect of mm-hmm. what he's concerned about I mean he talks about a uh, he has a little essay on Aristotle called the work of man where oh, yeah, he talks yeah. about a discussion that Aristotle has about whether man and of course, um, Aristotle was talking about men. Oh, uh, yeah. Whether man as man has a work um, and concedes. Aristotle concedes that in fact man does have a work and this work is to realize himself in the polis. So political action in a sense becomes a form of work, the distinctive form of work of man. And Agamben's question is always what happens if we conceptualize the human as a workless being, as a being which has no essence to realize, which has no particular work to conduct. So he basically reads the history of the 20th century through this kind of critique of Aristotle in a certain sense, in that he would see both Nazism and the Soviet Union in different ways as attempts to realise a work that would correspond to the essence of the human, Um, and he would see a need to get away from this through a certain worklessness, an idea that the human has nothing it has to do and nothing that it has to be. And I think that that motivates forms of politics, which for him can't take the model of the emancipatory politics of any previous historical period. And in fact, to the extent that he does provide a model, he provides the model of the poem. So he says that... What the poem does for language, which is deactivate its signifying and instrumental function, um, human action uh, needs to do, or politics needs to do for human action. So politics is essentially that, if it's anything, which prevents human works from or human action from having a particular instrumental purpose from having to carry out particular works and thereby make possible a form of human potentiality now i think if i could just say something about that i increasingly feel like this model of potentiality is particularly inadequate to the world in which we live, particularly because I think that that kind of model of infinite potentiality has been taken up by policy, by management discourses Uh uh to convince us to imagine that there are no structural constraints on human self-realisation or on social organisation. So I heard a very interesting um, paper recently about management discourses and how this language of... um, Infinite potentiality is essentially used by uh, policymakers to say, look, I know it seems incomprehensible how you could possibly reorganize your human services with this very, very limited budget that we're now giving you. But you just have to open up your minds and (laughs) infinite possibilities will present themselves things that we can't even imagine at this point. Now, that seems very much like a certain... Uh, emancipatory or critical gesture today there are possibilities that we can't even imagine there are infinite potentialities the human is not a fixed being there are all of these things that we potentially could be but I think that there is a a problem today and I think to a certain extent Agamben in his more recent work is aware of this of the demand to be anything and everything the infinitely flexible self Um, and so I think that To a certain extent, the kinds of critiques that Agamben makes of politics are so caught up in the model of the 20th century. And I understand why that is the case. And I understand why many political thinkers today are totally consumed by the attempt to ensure that that never happens again. Um, But I think that today we have other problems that are in a sense obfuscated by some of the political commitments that are taken from the 20th century as critiques of that century's disasters.
0: Yes. I mean, okay, a, a number of points again from there. So first, uh, the the example that you give about, um, so when you say the avoidance of, of fascism and um, uh, Stalinism as two ways of assigning a sort of... Um, work proper to the human, that this this is one of the reasons agamben wants to avoid any conception of politics that he think he thinks gives a, a model to work. I thought this was a good a- example of precisely your catastrophe and redemption thesis because a political model that you didn't um, mention in that context but that seems closer to what agamben is talking about, a, a model of a, a pol- form of a social organisation that doesn't seem to insist on a particular work of human beings, is Capitalist liberalism, particularly late capitalist absolutely. liberalism, um, it's just so it happens that a Agamben is going to going to make the move that you identify him as doing of saying, yes, indeed, that is that is hell, that is disaster, at least to all of the sort of horrendous things in the world. But there's a redemptive moment to it in that it, it's the regime that reveals the worklessness of. That's the, right. Yes, Agamben. absolutely. Okay. On the on question That's of on on the point about. um the, the, uh, the horrible, <laughs> the management thing that you went to, the, the potentiality, it just, uh, it's like, I, I know you'll say yes to this question, so I'm, <laughs> it's almost, but we'll see, I'll, I'll just, but would Agamben not say though that that kind that of talk is still involves fundamentally that talk of infinite potentiality that goes with this, this ubiquitous neoliberal discourse about endless flexibility and adaptability? still conceives potentiality under the sign of actuality, that it's about taking your infinite potential and then using it to do Grattan. And would that not be his, his critique of that sort of
1: Yes, yeah. I think that's right. And I think that he has, to a certain extent, critiqued that kind of language more recently. And there's a lovely yeah. little essay where he talks about what we cannot do. And this is very central to his account of potentiality, going back again to um, Aristotle and debates that Aristotle had with the Megarians about whether potentiality uh, was absolutely exhausted in the act. And yes. Um, Agamben is very taken by the idea that in order to say that something is potential, you must also have the potential not to. Yes. Um, it must have the capacity not to enter actuality, otherwise it would immediately coincide with actuality. So there's a little essay on what we cannot do, um, which I would read as a critique of the forms of flexible subjectivity uh, of contemporary neoliberalism, where he says something amusing along the lines of um, no one really wants to know that their heart surgeon is also uh, a video artist in their spare time (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can't remember if they're the precise examples he uses but you know it's something along those lines I mean that's true (laughs) (laughs) that's absolutely true Um, and so his point is that it's what we do not do that gives consistency to who we are, yes. and in that sense, the the imperative to be ever flexible, the imperative to assume that the fact that you don't know where you will be or what you will do in two years is just an exciting opportunity. Um, I think the argument would be that this is a fantasy. That actually, the capacity to not do is part of what constitutes us.
0: Yes, I mean, so so this is where I see I see. Um you're, you're sort of continuing sympathy and it's one of the show with, with Agamben's work that, that I mean what you just said is, is a beautiful sort of criticism what what occurs in this essay maybe in a lot of Agamben's work of something like a capitalist a, a sort of unconscious capitalist metaphysics or ontology right like, so to the extent that that informs contemporary ideology like Agamben's critique of it is maybe I think even uh, like for you like, like valuable and, and devastating and useful and we should keep reading but this is why maybe This will will, will lead to another topic, but but I think your point is that that's not enough. To the extent, like he can, those critiques can be great, but to the extent that it doesn't conceptualise politics or or leaves the discourse about politics in these in these sort of um, in this sort of space of indistinction between the catastrophe and the redemption, that that's the point at which you want to move past McGovern.
1: I think that's right. And I also, I mean, the other point would be that I actually do think that we need an analysis of capitalism and of contemporary neoliberal capitalism. And I think that an account which simply, for instance, takes monks as the model for uh, a new form of politics today or a new form of life is not actually going to be adequate to what we need to think in the context of contemporary capitalism. And there are some very simple reasons for that that I think you can go back to Marx's thought to find. So if we look at the question of uh, unemployment, for instance, where Agamben often considers worklessness or unemployment to, in a sense, be the the critical moment, the possibility of something which escapes the bounds of um, the imposition of work, whereas in Marx's thought, he makes the argument, which I think we're seeing is absolutely clear today that there is a sort of uh, a necessary relationship between the development and expansion of capitalism and the production of of unemployment and the constitution of a surplus population. So rather than that worklessness being somehow a threat to capitalism – Marx's account would say that actually capitalism creates that worklessness and thrives on relegating or abandoning a whole section of the population to a forced immiseration which at certain points can reach the level of an absolute abandonment, uh, an absolute surplus population that is no longer even needed to be at hand for the workings of the economy when things pick up a bit but is completely abandoned by the system. So I think it seems to me that there is a need for an account of political economy and there is a need for understanding the dynamics of contemporary capitalism and for thinking uh, about those dynamics in trying to formulate political responses.
0: That's an, that's an excellent point. I, I mean, I'm tempted to say flippantly, really, you don't think monks can cut <laughs> it? Like, like, you've heard it 1st on Philosophy <laughs> like, That's right. not a fan of monks, but no, no, no. Um, but seriously, no, no, that's, a, that's an excellent point. Quite. I, I, I like what you say about about unemployment and worklessness because I think when you talk about this kind of abandonment I mean you use the word advisedly in a, in a Gambinian sense and I think definitely I mean we've both been I think at some stage of our lives unemployed and and I think you know even even if you even if they were lucky enough um, um, to be in in situations like what our friend Mark Kelly would call it a, a sense very different from a gamble bi political um, regimes um, that that uh, that even if we don't reach this because of the existence of some vestige of so- of, of social safety nets of welfare of the welfare state, this this state of abject immiseration, still anywhere maybe before the state of absolutely abject immiseration in which case you probably can't do very much either you're you're never more sort of dependent on the on the state on the society that, that that you're creating you're you're not really in a position to be a, a racist stop because precisely as, goes, as a says abandonment is that state of kind of being as we said before, sort of fully under the law just as much as it is like like um, left behind by the law, left mm-hmm. offence to yourself. So. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd like to make this uh, transition um, to uh, perhaps talking about your, your current work, so what comes after um, catastrophe uh, and, and redemption and your sort of, uh, I, I think, really really powerful criticism of Gambon, which we, we've, we've talked about um, uh, somewhat, but... What you what you've been doing in the years since publishing the book is pursuing your initial project, and as far as I can tell, this this for some time has involved looking further into the origin of uh, human rights discourse, into the way that that's instrumentalized by governments, like the Association of NGOs, and, and you've done a lot of really um, amazing sort of empirical and historical. Uh, work to, uh, uh, in, in the pursuit of this analysis. Can you tell us, uh, us a bit about this? Um,
1: well, yes. I mean, as you say, since I finished that book, I've really been working on the problem of human rights. And initially, the form that this took was that I was very interested in something that I discussed a slight, uh, just slightly in the book, but which I really wanted to follow up on, which was... Um, Michel Foucault's relationship to um, figures associated with Médecins Sans Frontières um, in the last um, period of his life, and people in particular who formulated the idea of the right to intervene on humanitarian grounds, or what later became humanitarian intervention. And there's a particular figure, Bernard Kouchner, who was yes. a former uh. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> um, former head of Médecins Sans Frontières, but worked uh, very closely with Foucault towards the end of Foucault's life, the two of them uh, went on a trip to Poland together Um, they put out various um, they did various work together around Vietnamese uh, asylum seekers and a number of political questions and this was in the period that Foucault was increasingly making use of the language of human rights uh, in his political interventions and in particular he gave a little um, Speech uh, at the UN in Geneva which has been published under the title in English, Confronting Governments, Human Rights where he says that the suffering of men grounds this absolute right to um, stand up to those in power and he talks about a new interventionist politics that he associates with Amnesty International and Medicine Demande and some of these new human rights and humanitarian NGOs that came, about, came into being in the sort of late 1960s and 1970s so I was very fascinated in what was at stake in this relationship and what was the resonance potentially between Foucault's thought and this new interventionist politics of human rights so what did he see in it and I was also very interested in a certain instrumentalism or instrumentalization of Foucault's work by figures like Bernard Kushner who went on after Foucault's death to play major roles in developing the norm of humanitarian intervention and supporting forms of military intervention. And at various points quoted Foucault and quoted that Geneva address in particular, saying, I would like to quote my friend Foucault. Okay. He says very neatly what I would like to say here. So I became very interested in that relationship. And more broadly, in a particular relationship between strands of critical continental philosophy and critical thought and sort of liberationist politics of the 60s and 70s and emerging neoliberalism. Um, And I see the, the rise of human rights discourses as part of a revival of liberalism um, in the 1970s, that is that we could call neoliberalism in a certain sense. Although the specific relationship between human rights discourses and neoliberal economic policies is a more complex question. That is what I'm working on to a certain extent now. So I became interested in that broader terrain of liberal revivalism in the 1970s, um, and that led me, in particular, to work on some of the NGOs that were really. Um, Significant in that period. In particular, um, Medicine Sans Frontieres, but also Amnesty International, and I'm also interested in Human Rights Watch. So really this was this new form of liberal politics that made use of a language of human rights, but it was quite a distinctive language. It in many ways uh, was distinct from certain of the... Um, political assumptions that informed say delegates who drafted the universal declaration of human rights which i've been doing a lot of work on the drafting debates and what's fascinating about those debates is that you get the sense so this is 1947 Mm -hmm. um, and then 48 when these debates are taking place and you get a sense of Profound political, economic, metaphysical distinctions between starkly different visions of what human flourishing would look Uh like, uh what a good society would be. And really, I mean, the level of sophistication of these arguments is quite. quite serious and you compare that to today in which i think the the vision of human rights that has been taken up by those ngos is one that has been very narrowly focused on a particular idea of civil and political rights Um, that's starting to change to a certain extent today but it's a vision which was very much uh, compatible with the emerging uh, neoliberalism of the time and so that's really the the two Terrain that my current work is on, trying to really um, look in quite a bit of detail at both the conceptual and the historical relationship between the politics of human rights and the emergence of neoliberalism in the 1970s and onwards. <laughs>
0: So many questions um, <laughs> uh, uh, about this. I mean, there, there are lots of specific things I want to ask you, some historical things about, about people like Bernard K- uh, Kuchner. We'll get on to the odious uh, Les field of self, the relationship between philosophy and the rise of this kind of discourse. But before I ask any of those things, I, I want to ask a broader question, which is just how do you see, in, in broad terms today, the relationship between human rights discourses and, I, I suppose, the... Um, the like like fresh with French le, le pense unique, right? Like like the neoliberalism, there is no alternative capitalist realism politics about mm-hmm. it. because I know this is this is something that spurs your, your thought of thinking yeah. that these two things are complicit,
1: but mm-hmm. but yeah, could you could you say a bit about how, how you see yes. this? Um Well, as you say, I think these things are complicit. And one of the the ways I think they're complicit is precisely in this bracketing of any other possible political or economic um, possibility in the world. So the idea that there is no alternative um, maps on very neatly to um, the idea that, um, you know, this is the most we can hope for, that human rights and preventing a little bit of evil is the best we're ever going to get from this world. And... I mean frankly when you look at the state of the world and you know particularly the the state of um you know the Arab world today but not only the African continent, there are huge swathes of the world in which the idea that this is the best uh, we can hope for, that we're simply preventing a little bit of evil, really is completely unsustainable when you look at the world that we're actually inhabiting. We're seeing enormous amounts of violence being done in the name of the view that this is all there can ever be. Yes. Um, So in terms of some of the specifics, I mean, I think that there are various aspects to this. There's a conceptual resonance, and I think I'm particularly interested in looking at the thought of founding figures of, like, the Pelon Society, mm-hmm. um, early neoliberal thought of people like uh, Friedrich Hayek in particular, yes. and the way that it resonates with many of the commitments of human rights NGOs, and particularly one of the really... Um, Uh, important convergences I think is to do with an idea of coercion and how coercion is understood and for Hayek coercion can only ever be something that somebody deliberately does to someone else so willful deliberate action and I think that this is the model of coercion that we essentially see in the human rights movement also which has been very inadequate in dealing with questions of social and economic rights and in saying that I'm not actually calling for human rights movements to deal with social and economic rights I don't think that they're the right language for thinking about these questions and I think that there is actually a very consistent argument that actually the language of human rights works on violations of civil and political rights particularly because as kenneth roth the uh, head of human rights watch says there's someone to name and shame now on the one hand to say um you know, when it comes to economic and uh, social questions, there's no one to name and shame while you're simultaneously taking millions of dollars from George Soros, uh, <laughs> is potentially disingenuous. <coughs> On the other <laughs> hand, there is a certain logic so. to the idea that capitalism is not just a question of bad people doing bad things deliberately. That so there are not. structural logics that Absolutely. human rights cannot necessarily uh, capture and that other forms of political languages and other forms of struggles are actually necessary to deal with what Marx calls the dull compulsion of economic relations and to me that's a really central uh relationship between the politics of human rights of the 70s and neoliberalism is that both of them obscure and naturalize that dull compulsion the the compulsion of poverty the requirement to to get a job to sell one's labor because one is deprived of any other option but to do so and Hayek is very explicit about this he says I'm not coerced if I accept a very low paying job, even if I am at the mercy of the only man willing to employ me. So that kind of compulsion simply doesn't register as any kind of um, minimisation or any kind of threat to freedom. And I think that the human rights movement has also completely naturalized the forms of compulsion that are central to the protection of private property, um, except at the point where they take a very brutal and lawless form when you actually have armed gangs beating up union organizers or those kinds of moments, then perhaps the human rights movement will have something to say. But that everyday compulsion of economic relations, I think, um, has been left largely unchallenged, as has um, economic inequality more broadly so that would be one thing but on the historical level i think that there are also some um some starker historical questions and there's a big historical debate that's taking place now about precisely this question of what is the relationship between human rights and neoliberal capitalism and um one of the arguments that i think is compelling is that the human rights movement in for instance latin america um acted as a set of uh, blinders, as um, both um, Naomi Klein and uh, the legal theorist Susan Marks have talked about the the role of the human rights movement in essentially obscuring the economic policies that were taking place, say, in Chile at the time when neoliberalism was being imposed um, and focusing on torture and disappearances as if they simply came out of nowhere, as if they were not connected to any broader project. And it's quite extraordinary. Time trying
0: to pinochet being a bad guy. Sorry, sorry. That's right. That's right. right.
1: Well, or or perhaps not even. I mean, it's very fascinating reading um, the reports of Amnesty International from that period because Amnesty International was extremely engaged and really came to prominence in dealing with the question of torture and disappearances in Chile, in Latin America more broadly. But you read, for instance, their report on Chile and they say... uh, you know, there are all these disappearances. They, uh, they remain unaccounted for. Um, so far, the government has refused to conduct an inquiry. And this is completely inadequate. The government needs to make a public statement. And you just think... I mean, are you serious? Like, the government needs to carry out an inquiry into why the torture and disappearance is happening? As if like, they're not doing that. As if like, they if are the not party that's saying, gosh, why is that, that happening? <laughs> Who? We should investigate what's going on here. Um, so there's that aspect, but I've also been doing some work which is on much stronger relationships. So that would be, in a sense, a relationship of... Um, which would simply focus on the fact that they didn't talk about... neoliberal restructuring so that would be about the blind spots of human rights and the way that those blind spots in a certain sense contribute to blinding others to certain structural relationships but i've also been doing some work which is not yet published um which is on much stronger connections between particularly medicine sans frontier and uh, various neoliberal think tanks and figures uh in the 1980s um so That's, in a sense, a much stronger historical relationship where these people were actually working together. Um, And I think that this was very much part of that moment that you talk about, that sort of the historical moment of a revival of liberalism, a revival of liberalism that cast itself as uh, in opposition to totalitarianism um, and that justified convergences between... An economic and a political form of liberalism. Mm.
0: Yes, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose if I, I might split my my next question, uh, uh, split hmm, some of the themes that you've raised up there into 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 kind of like historical question and then and then a, a political question relating to the present. Because I think your I think your work on this um, addresses both simultaneously. Like like my sense is there's a there's a historical question that asks about things like first um how does something like neoliberalism come to take hold right like how does it how does it come to have a hegemony in 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 the modern world especially i mean this is why uh, one of the fun things about your work for me is like i sort of think okay it's about i don't know it's 1975 right like we've just gone through these these you know red years right like like uh, revolutions, uh, uh, and also, but also, like for the whole century and and into the previous one, there has been the kind of political language, or there have been political names now forgotten for talking about the kinds of things, the dull compulsion of, of economic life, as you as you spoke of, that in our epoch will disappear, will fade into the background, except or or at least only be used in certain sort of marginal um, um, spaces, and you have very very quickly this move to no no let's repudiate that entire heritage not not there are problems with it not you know we you know we need to deal with the the legacy of stalinism or or the legacy of the cultural revolution in china and see what was sort of what went wrong there but we have to reject everything uh, uh, um, about those forms of critique that would focus on the dull compulsion of economic life and then on the other hand so and and in in its place we put human rights which kind of deals with human beings kind of bipolitically, like as bodies who can as as bodies that can suffer, mm-hmm. right? And then there's and it's bodies that can suffer, and then it's an appeal to people often with no reference to any sort of structural um like to what accounts for the difference in their structural position. An appeal to a certain group of people who are always sort of often geographically and economically in the same place, sort of literally and metaphorically, to intervene in the name of the suffering of others who are again always structurally located in the same place but you can't talk about the structure right like so sure. it's a moralizing discourse and i think sure. this is well you know this is central to your work is mm-hmm. it's a kind of it's a kind of replacement of what was once politics like a grand political tradition with morality uh, but also it's almost like a morality of spectators like like you can um, we watch on our TV screens, we see people who look hungry, people who have been persecuted. It's like, send in the troops, right? Like, send in amnesty, send in, you know, mixture, the indistinguishability between aid and food, as, as mm. various things. Okay, so one movement, it seems to be like, how the hell did this happen historically? Something that you've done done, done a lot of work on. How did how did this these kind of revenue drifted um movements and, and a, a century of Marxist sort of criticism sort of evaporate to the margin so very quickly right and on the other hand uh in, in contrast though there's this sort of project of neoliberalism who are around the same time a lot of them as far as i know are kind of austrian or american cranks right we've got a sort of social welfare state we've got um, we've got vaguely broadly keynesian economics the post-war compromise and then on the other side and we've got, and we've got these guys who are really fringe figures, like we're talking about neoclassical economics and other things that the economic orthodoxy of the last 50 years just, just thinks is total bollocks, right? But you're the only person I know who's, who thinks, who has, I, I think, had the insight to think, wait, the, and then done the historical work to back up that the genesis of the one is related to the, to the genesis of, of the other, right? But, but my sense is your point is, is not just, they're not just chronologically related, that there's, a, there's an extent to which they're also kind of causally imbricated with each other. Can you say a bit about that? Like, how would you tell the story of, say, the the rise of, of these two parallel movements of human mm-hmm. rights, discourse, and neo mm.
1: Gosh, right. it's a big question. Um, and I think it's clear that a starting point has to be with the failure of the previous uh alternatives or utopias and in this sense i would agree with the analysis of the historian sam moyn who argues that really it was the collapse of communism and of anti-colonialism that mm-hmm. meant that human rights could come to prominence as what he terms the last utopia um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's correct. Um, He doesn't talk about neoliberalism in this work, but I think that something similar is true there. But I'm dissatisfied with much of the work which, and I'm not talking about his work in particular, but there's a lot of discussion of the economic crisis of the 1970s and of the collapse of communism and of anti-colonialism as if these things just collapsed on their own accord. Like spontaneously. Spontaneously. Not like in the wind. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the wind blew um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I mean, particularly when we're talking about anti-colonialism, I've been doing quite a bit of work recently on the new international economic order, which was the third world non-aligned movement's proposal for a complete reorientation of economic relations <laughs> in the wake of colonialism. And it was very interesting, even talking about what we were talking about before, about the, the split between nature and politics or man and citizen, that basically the arguments of people like Mohammed Bujawi, the Algerian legal theorist who is a key theorist of the new international economic order, was that political equality, the equality of supposedly sovereign states that had come about in the wake of decolonisation, had proven itself to be illusory because substantive inequality was still the reality of international relations. And so, you know, what Kwame Nkrumah called neocolonialism was still the fundamental structural relation of global politics and global economics. So, I mean, the new international economic order was a very ambitious program to equalise economic relations and Mm -hmm. to enable um, post-colonial societies to have real independence and to free themselves from neo-colonial economic relations, from the power of multinational corporations. And it was premised on the idea that colonial powers owed a certain debt to those they had colonised and that there should be forms of redistribution um, to make up for the enormous amount that had been taken from these societies throughout the colonial period. Now... In 1974, when this went through the UN General Assembly, it did so unopposed. Even the United States was not prepared to actually veto or argue against. And in part, this was because of the... The prestige of anti-imperialist language, the fact that it was difficult for the United States, in particular, to stand up and um, side with imperialism, yeah. given its own history and its own rhetorical stance of portraying itself as the great anti-imperialist nation, since the um, First World War, like
0: like uh, Woodrow Wilson doing that, doing and, and I suppose after the Second World War, where they kind of like clean up your imperialism, Europe, this that's is, right, yeah, that's
1: yeah. right. So you know, this went through the United Nations General Assembly. But in the context of, say, the OPEC blockade, there was enormous, enormous uh, organisation by the Western powers, by the former colonial powers, by um, the new Bretton Woods institutions to ensure that this agenda did not succeed. And this involved enormous efforts to split the various um, parts of the Third World Bloc from each other, to split certain oil-producing states away from others, to break the forms of solidarity. And interestingly... This coincided with certain critiques of um, the third world state um, as totalitarian. And certain of these critiques came from post-colonial theory. They came from, um, certainly they came from humanitarian organisations who started to focus their attentions on human rights abuses in um, post-colonial states using language that was very very similar to much of the colonial language that had been used to predict what these societies would look like if the colonial powers left they'd be you know barbaric places right, of right, poverty and human right. rights abuse and all of this Things which um, to sectarian violence and blah blah blah
0: they won't be able to hold a community together very yeah, kind of
1: all of these kinds of arguments yeah. and also I mean with that interestingly a real critique of forms right. of Abstraction that had been used to generate forms of political solidarity. So, an enormous onslaught on the category of the third world, for instance, for supposedly denying difference and for being inadequately attentive to uh, differences of history and differences of culture, differences of religion. So, there was an elevation of difference, but it was an elevation that worked against forms of artificial. Uh, political solidarity and this was um, something that neoliberal thinkers were very much involved in as well as um, certain figures involved in human rights movements certain NGOs and I think all this was going on at the same time as some very very concerted um, economic and political assaults um, on uh, the independence of former colonies so I think I mean obviously I can't go into detail into all of these aspects of what I'm trying to describe. But what I am trying to suggest is to simply say, for instance, that um, the project of um, the new international economic order or the third world's project of global redistribution failed um, doesn't take into account the fact that what essentially happened is that there was an enormous political economic struggle uh, over the possibility of this global reorientation of economic and political relations that pitted the strongest states and powers against those who had just freed themselves from colonialism and I think in that context what happened is that um, essentially the most powerful one and so I think that there was there are profound political relations that are at stake in the transformations which then created the conditions for people like Hayek to stop being crazy marginalized people who said things like you know if any if we no longer bother to say we're all socialists now it's because the fact is too obvious to remark upon (laughs) Um, for him to cease to be something like that and be thrust into the limelight of serious economic thought I think this took a significant political struggle
0: yeah. So I mean, one of one of the correctives you seem to offer to an official history there is is the is the extent to which these things didn't just come out of a, a defeat of past sort of utopian movement or, or political leftist movements of struggle, but the but but of of defeat by by clear opposition right like like that things things were crushed things were i mean sometimes people are literally murdered imprisoned uh etc but but there's also i mean i'm thinking you know given the, the the tone of the podcast i mean something else you bring out and 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 did in your last answer is that there's also an element of ideological warfare accompanying this and and you mentioned the the ideology of of difference right like the, the sort of fetish for difference is like uh, oh in an age where totalitarianism is the sort of signifier from everything of everything that is wrong which is something you get in the works of um, Glucksmann glucksman and and the new and the new philosophers um or who also I'd like to ask you about this have some sort of some sort of obscure and unsettling connection with with Foucault. Um, um, the, the exact details of which I I, I I would need your opinion of because I it's something I've heard of but never investigated in in great detail. But so on the one hand there's there's ideologies of different. You can't say the third world that belongs to a Cold War context. It homogenizes or so mm-hmm. on. And I, I I suppose that I, I want to ask you about the role you think. Philosophy played in this, especially because. Uh, so, so coming back to the question of Foucault, especially because I think maybe ha, uh, you might you might not think this is true, but maybe one of the things that I think uniquely qualifies you to do this work is something about the way. Uh, about the Anglophobe anglophone reception of of French theory in the eighties and nineties, and like in, when a long time when we were young, just right. <laughs> um, uh, and but but you know, it's always been sort of oh, a lot of these motifs about about difference and France, the nation of the revolution and of May sixty eight, etc. But I think what comes out of your work actually is that, t- to a large extent, some of the the postmodern bromides of of, of that epoch. Are lesser reception of the great French philosophers of the sixties, of, of these these huge names of like Derrida and Foucault and whatever, or despite the fact that these guys might be complicit in that or Lacan, but rather are in some ways that what we inherit is something quite a lot like is is the the new philosophy, Glucksmann et al, mm-hmm. disguised as as the French philosophy of the sixties, mm-hmm. exactly. and and I think this then introduces a question of an uncomfortable complicity of to what extent was the uh, the preparation laid for this this anti-totalitarian all about discourse? Uh, look at power in in sort of very broad, vague terms as the thing that's crushing like bodies and and so on. Like to, to what extent um, is is French theory or, or, or French philosophy of the kind of the sixties of the kind that we um, we both up to a point know and know and love sort of sort of complicit with uh, the new kind of ideological. Pagamon that brings them to being the kind of
1: things you're, you're talking about yeah. look it's a really interesting question and it's one that i don't have a complete answer to but it's certainly one that motivates me and it's those um disturbing resonances mm-hmm. that are i think what makes me interested in the philosophical aspects of these transformations and not just strictly the historical aspects of what took place and i think that in a certain sense both aspects of what you said are correct. I mean, on the one hand, I think we certainly see um, an absolutely bastardized version of uh, French philosophy in the thought of people like the Nouveau Philosoph, in Glucksmann, in Bernard Ron Levy. <laughs> uh, so uh, sorry <laughs> <That's> to, <laughs> have to use his name. Uh, these people. Um, and certainly you see aspects of a, a critique in some of that earlier generation of French philosophers like Foucault and Deleuze. I mean, uh, I think that one of the best things that Deleuze ever wrote was his critique of the Nouveau Philosophie. Oh, it's so, uh, so biting and hilarious and brilliant, isn't Extremely it? Yeah. biting, yeah, yeah, extremely yeah, yeah. hilarious. Makes the argument that, in fact, they're not philosophers. No, they're no. media publicists, which is just which literally is, which true. Which is true. <laughs> 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 uh, but also, I mean, it has lines like, uh, he says something like, you know, the gulags and the martyrs of history, they live on corpses. Yeah. And I think that so that, yeah. that extreme pathos and that building of, a self-legitimation on this claim to be shrieking on behalf of the victims um, is one that someone like Deleuze really picked up on very neatly in an essay like that it's one of his um, great moments definitely absolutely so, yeah. um, and interestingly Foucault was much closer to those yeah. people and um, you know there are about a million different accounts of the break between Foucault and Deleuze but certainly one of the explanations that's been given is precisely over the Nouveau Philosoph um, But interestingly, in something like Foucault's um, lecture series, The Birth of Biopolitics, there is what I would see as a critique of that kind of uh, thought of his time. He doesn't mention them specifically, but both of that philosophical moment and also of the forms of political dynamics where he talks about what he terms state phobia. Um, And it's a very insightful remark, I think, where Foucault says that Those who today talk about the great figure of the state as the ultimate evil, who conflate social security records and concentration camps into a single analysis, who have this account of the state as the absolute evil in our heads. All of these themes are in fact... um, straight out of 1930s 40s neoliberalism yeah. and that people who make these kind of critiques don't realize that in fact they're following the direction of the wind that this is now the politics that is coming to prominence this kind of state phobic rhetoric that has been part of the neoliberalism of certainly someone like hayek for a long time yes. you know, hayek famously talks about the road to serfdom and yes. conflates sort of new deal social welfare with uh, nazi, uh, nazi that's know, well yeah. not Nazism but with the fate of Germany um, in that period so I think that there are some really insightful critiques there but I also think that there was um, a critique of um, Marxism in someone like Foucault for instance which I think really resonated with much of what the Nouveau philosophes were doing and perhaps I can see very little other basis for Foucault's alliance with someone like Glucksmann in that period other than a shared anti-Marxism because certainly at the level of thought if you read something like you know Bernard Henri Levy's barbarism with a human face which I am sorry to say I have done um really while there is a certain rhetorical gesturing to Foucault's work and to an account of power there it's such a philosophically weak or non-existently philosophical work but also one which I think is starkly uh, removed from the key assumptions of Foucault's thought really but I think that there there was a certain attraction to uh, liberalism and neoliberalism in Foucault's late thought I know this is a controversial question but I think that he did see something in the neoliberal thinkers in particular that he was attracted to I also think that there is something about that Generation of French thinkers that came to prominence in a certain sense in the wake of Sartre, uh, that is very striking, which is the extent to which they ignored the question of Algeria um, and the extent to which the question of Algeria, which had been such a profound and massive question for France, Um, the
0: 50s and and, and like yeah yeah absolutely
1: and still i mean in terms of massive migration to france from algeria in terms of what it meant to actually deal with that uh colonial situation with the fact that from the perspective of france a chunk of france had been ripped away from the perspective of algeria the massive violence done by the french state um i think that the complete absence of reflection on that in that generation of thinkers is quite stark and I don't quite know what to say about it, but I think that the fact that the people who then came after them really took, in a certain sense, a renewed civilising mission, a renewed colonial project um, and developed that is something which needs further investigation, perhaps. Yeah, I think I
0: mean that's that's something I've I've never thought about. I mean, obviously, with with uh, with Jean-Proust, paul is is you know really like I mean, there's the uh, not just the the famous uh, introduction to Fanon to Ratchet the other, but is really serious about both the Algerian struggle, uh, breaks brace with Camus over this, arguably Absolutely. among other yeah. things, but also a defender. Uh, I mean, generally a, a, um, I went to the, first, the a third worldist in uh, sure. very, very yeah. much so. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see what happens to this in the in the next generation I think, thinkers, the structures. I mean, I know people like Badu, um are very sort of active, you know, in, in mm-hmm. terms of protests they are doing. What, but he's also, but he's also very young. And at the time, like a lot, of, like some of the later, some of the younger members of that generation would have been kind of at, at school, sort of, at university, and as far as I know. There's some some sort of engagement with political protest against the war and what the and what the the french army are doing with their mm-hmm. the counterterrorism techniques that they will later export to the u.s and the, the sort of disgusting things they do in algeria but i think you but uh but yeah i think that's i think that's a really ex- extraordinary point that, that of just that you're sort of saying in the in the vacuum which comes from from what used to be an anti-colonialist discourse comes uh, the legitimation of a colonial a colonial discourse sure. um I suppose that another thing that interests me about this period and if, if we're f- focusing on France in, in, in France is, is the strangeness of maybe from people from Anglophone countries of the discovery of liberalism as if it is a as if it is this new radical project mm-hmm. instead of instead of the, the sort mm-hmm. of um, you know oldest wine in the <laughs> really quite old bottles as well like I think I think even if you are um um I, I don't know, a sort of Cold War, anti totalitarian a, a Cold Warrior in the sort of American sense. I think it's still as hard to be excited about about liberalism as someone like <laughs> Andre it? <Luxembourg. laughs> sure, because sure. it's just been the dominant Absolutely. ideology of the last yes. of the last century. Yes, yeah. yes. Um uh, something something I wanted to ask you about about that though. Oh, coming back to coming back to the question if you can I'm sorry to press you on this, but it's just it's it's almost like I'm thinking, oh, can we can we absolve him? Can we, <laughs> yeah. you know, help him to see? I mean, when you said when you said the point uh, from the birth of biopolitics, like I was sort of cheering on the inside. Like, Thank oh, God, Foucault, you, you didn't entirely go over to the dark side. Sure. But you do think, uh, for instance, I haven't read the speech that you mentioned, um, the title which you know scares me very much um, um, about about Geneva. But am I right to say it, it, it is your position that? He, to some extent does kind of suture himself to this emergent movement of uh, human rights discourse etc at least up to a point or
1: yes I think so but yeah. I think that that doesn't mean that he would approve what that became oh, after honey. his death and obviously no. I mean you know Foucault died really in the early stages of that movement so and like 84, 81, yeah. something, something around 84. that yeah, like, yeah yeah. Um. so I think I would certainly resist those attempts to claim that because he, for instance, supported Amnesty International and Medicines Sans Frontieres and a certain idea of a right to intervene back then, that he would therefore support um, what has subsequently become of those discourses. Support that, the invasion that, um, of Iraq um, yes, yes, which, I mean, really, yes. there are attempts, yes. by and Glucksmann makes one of these attempts to essentially say, oh, well, you know, Foucault loved humanitarian intervention and he'd be very happy about all of mm-hmm. this." And I think, obviously to really attempt to say what Foucault would think about anything is a futile project, but we can look at what he did say when he was alive, and one of the things that I think is quite significant is that he was approached by um, Kushner and by a number of others to sign a petition calling for France to take action against Gaddafi when uh, Gaddafi invaded Chad, and Foucault refused to sign on the basis that he would not be seen to be calling for war. And so I think that what that suggests to us is that while he was certainly taken by a model of human rights activism, which posed itself as uh, anti-sovereignty and crossing borders, and as enabling what he termed private individuals to intervene in a realm that had been uh, dominated by states, that nonetheless, he was certainly not calling for military intervention by states like France to, um, you know, prevent human rights abuses, that that was something that he explicitly refused to do. So, you know, I mean, to the extent that there's an attempt to recuperate him for that project, I think it has to grapple with something like the most uh, the clearest statement that he did make on a dynamic like that, which
0: is in regards to to the Chad Libya situation. I mean, this is good just because at least I I don't have to have the vision that you know. I mean, we can be a hundred percent certain that Foucault would never have have gone all open shirted to to Libya and, <laughs> and, and you know I think s- so. told the president of France to to invade and various other figures to invade inflicted appalling consequences like <laughs> solved zero problems and then made a documentary himself as the kind of white messiah
1: of his um i think he wouldn't have done that yeah. <laughs> that is that is deeply deeply reassuring all
0: right um so i think coming coming to the end of the coming to the end of the interview i just i'd just like to ask you maybe one or two last last questions before we finish up so one is, um uh to do to do with your current work i mean I, I believe you've recently uh, been interviewing a number of figures in in France mm-hmm. I, I think who were kind of uh, either architects of this product uh, I, I suppose I'm saying a kind of um, almost explicit a neoliberal plus human rights like like you have neoliberalism and then human rights is these sort of ethical supplements to the, to the horrendous depredations that you created the world that you have you've been to France interviewing people who are kind of at the centre of this project who either are or were at the centre of this project and I'm curious I mean obviously you can't recount every interview you, you did and so on but I'm curious in your mind what, how, how do these people see themselves or how do, how do they see the, their own work or, or what do you think in their own mind justifies what they're doing maybe even and especially in the face of a critique like the one mm-hmm. that, that we've been making
1: Look, I mean, I think that there are various different positions and I feel like I don't want to say too much about the interviews until I've really done the work uh, based on them. Otherwise, I'm sort of just telling anecdotes about what people said. Fair enough, um, too. Yeah, no, totally fair. But, I mean, there were very different perspectives. I was uh, interviewing people who were in the leadership of Medicine Sans Frontier in the 1980s in particular, um, as well as a number of other people who are um, involved in Medicine Sans Frontier now and people who are... Um, were around the debates that were taking place in the 80s um in relation to human rights and neoliberalism and some of these questions and i mean really there were starkly different perspectives depending on how people situate themselves in relation to the present so those who were more critical of the present and of neoliberal policies now tended to be more reflective and more critical of certain aspects of the practices of that NGO um, in the 80s and in the period in which they were much more gung-ho, anti-totalitarianism, liberalism all the way. Um, Whereas people, obviously, who are still neoliberals now and are fairly um, committed to neoliberal premises today are obviously not critical of the kinds of... uh, Things that they did then, yeah, right. No, okay.
0: That makes that makes sense. This the thing for our last question in terms of where work are going, I was wondering um, about the reception of of your work thus far. I mean, I mean, I suppose as long as I as long as I've uh, known you and, and known you working on this, what, what I think is is an incredibly important um, project, an incredible project, sort of intellectual, historical, and, and political project. I've had the sense that. Um, you know you're also doing something really quite courageous in that people have a lot of investment in human rights discourse and I suppose I, I wonder do you ever get um, do you ever get accused of I, I don't I mean this this would seem so ridiculous in one sense of of by critiquing human rights being pro, the kind of things that human rights organisations are supposed to protest against, so somehow pro torture or pro landmines or etc. Like, like well, yeah.
1: And if not, what is what is the reception to your work? Like? No one, one has directly told me that I'm pro landmines. <laughs> <Thank laughs> I'm glad to thank say. Thank <laughs> say. God. I, I um, love the idea of also implicitly pro, like or covertly pro landmines Like, yeah. I mean, I think that in a certain sense, the bigger f- fear I have is that the work that I'm doing is simply assimilable within a human rights framework and what I don't want to be doing is just um, refining a better model of global humanitarian government Um, and it's never obvious how to avoid that kind of um, position to a certain extent people who are interested in the question of human rights are obviously not happy about certain of the things that I talk about. But there's also a real capaciousness to human rights discourse, which Mm -hmm. I think goes together with the fact that it has become, in a sense, the last utopia, that it has swallowed so many other political possibilities and movements, that uh, in a certain sense it's quite hard to get purchase on human rights Itself, and what we often see is what um, my friend and colleague Ben Golder calls redemptive critiques of human rights discourse, right, where right. you make all these critiques, but then at the very end come in and say, "But that's why we need a better human rights." Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I want to not do. And the difficulty of that is that then what people often say is, "Well, then you know, what's the alternative?" And I think that there's. Um, often a response and in fact uh, a colleague said this to me just two days ago um, how can you criticize these things if you don't have a better alternative on hand and on the one hand I think that there are numerous things that I think could potentially be better but I also think that my role is not to find the better political model but to point out some of what I think are really quite irresolvable problems with the The discourse of human rights and also the global governance structures that have been developed what some call the human rights industry and potentially on that basis it creates a space where other possibilities become thinkable in the sense that people see a need to try to think of something else so I think if I can contribute to that kind of work then that's enough
0: yeah I mean I I think the accusation that you can't um uh, critique something in the absence of an alternative it, it very much misses one of the central points of your work which I think i think you do, you've done a lot of historical work to suggest the complexity with human rights discourse in terms of suggesting that there is no other alternative so in a sense your alternative is the whole field of possible alternatives, apart from apart from continuing to do exactly yeah, that's right what we're doing. So so yeah, that critique seems to miss the point to me. But yeah, on the which of
1: course risks that we're back in the realm of infinite possibilities, which is not what I'm wanting to suggest. No. I'm not wanting to suggest that there are infinite possibilities. I'm just wanting to suggest that perhaps we can think of one other yeah that I might mean, be good. I mean, that's right. I mean, maybe at
0: that level, I think I think you know. Uh, I know you don't talk to her about him a lot, and maybe it's a little bit um, absurd of me to try and, and try and bring out your 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 um, secret uh, badewi inside. But I do think I do think um, uh, Badiou is is very good at uh, uh, never having taken up this kind of this kind of rhetoric of infinite um, possibility, or even even anything like this. Still using in a work like Three of the Subjects the uh, the critique of what he's still very old school Leninist sounding thing called ultralapsism, which he identifies with a kind of uh, focus on the redemptive capacities of some kind of super subject as opposed to the the subject as as placed within a structure, right? And I think you can see this in a lot of Nouveau Philosoph discourse of even even like Ladro and, and Jean Bay, these these kind of like the angel mm-hmm. against 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 the state of, of history that's is present in Glossy, is present in lots of Postmodern is present in this sort of frictionless capitalist discourse of inexhaustible bodies that, that can work forever and uh, have sex forever and, and do all of, and do all of these sorts of things. But I think I think in your work and and yeah, no, there, there's still a, a kind of commitment to something like um, you know, communism or something, yeah, or sure. should be a fair yeah.
1: Yes. Which doesn't mean that I don't think that we have to very uh, comprehensively rethink that that what that would mean no but yes i, I mean anymore
0: and i mean and, and any more than than bad you would like that's Absolutely. right the, the communism yeah. as in as in the signifier like we're not talking about really existing socialism of sure. the 90s sure. and um, so forth but i think yeah i mean i i just say this by way of again and um, kind of responding to your colleague that the idea that there is an alternative presumes that that all of those older traditions will not just be something that needs to be rethink, and we need new forms of political organisation. But that you would need to repudiate not just the not just not just older political forms, but also the goals, mm-hmm. or also the and I, and my sense is that you don't repudiate some sure, of No, that's the, correct. the goals of the Marxist political um, all right, um, Dr. Jess White it's been it's been an extraordinary pleasure. Um, I, uh, you are a wonderfully, um, frighteningly articulate guest. I, I, um, I, I have, I have really, really enjoyed this this interview. Um, I'm sorry for the sort of crap bits where I punctuated oh, right. your discourse, but <laughs> but otherwise, um, um, thank you so much for appearing on the show. I hope you do so once again. And thank um, you, um, Good luck with all of your wonderful work. Thank
1: you. Jeff. Thank you very much. <laughs>